and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Flavia Munn, editor of Nursing Standard. This episode focuses on the Nursing and Midwifery Council and what it is doing to be a fairer and kinder regulator. The NMC's ability to remove a registrant's license to practice, their livelihood, understandably makes some nursing staff fearful of the regulator. Research has also shown inequalities for certain groups of nurses, midwives and nursing associates on the NMC register. For example, registrants are more likely to face fitness to practice processes if they are male, trans, bisexual, black, living in certain parts of the UK or places such as the Channel Islands, who trained in Northern Ireland, work in settings such as the cosmetic or aesthetic sector, or as someone whose disability is unknown to the regulator. Now, the NMC is taking steps to improve its processes and make them more transparent, efficient and less stressful to those, for example, undergoing referrals. Leading the change is NMC Chief Executive Andrea Sutcliffe, who joined the regulator, which also sets standards for the profession, in 2019. And she joins me to discuss the NMC's work on diversity and inclusion. So hello and welcome to the podcast, Andrea. It's absolutely lovely to be here, Flavia. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you for finding the time and your busy schedule. So do appreciate it. So the NMC has pledged to eliminate discrimination in its processes. So how will the way a referral is handled for a registrant change and how do you hope it makes them feel? I think there are two ways that we need to look at that, Flavia. The first is how we do things and the second is what we do. And the how is really important because, as Mayor Angelou said, you know, people forget what you said, what you did, but they never forget how you made them feel. And we know that whenever a registrant is referred into, into our fitness to practice process, it makes them feel dreadful. And if we are not treating them properly, and particularly if they have a protected characteristic of any um, description, uh, if they feel that they are being discriminated against um, as because of that, it will make them feel even worse and less confident of engaging with us uh, and, and working with us. So on the how, we want to live the values that we've got around being fair and being kind. So it's all about treating people with dignity and respect, understanding their their position, the context in which they're, they're, they're living and, and working, and making sure that they feel valued not disregarded and it's it's interesting when we were developing the values people said to me well how on earth can a regulator be kind um because you you've got this power over people and my response to that is i want us to treat people who are coming into contact with us you know the way that i would want to be treated and we don't want to be unkind we don't want to make people feel any worse than they already do and we can actually encourage them to um to engage with us in a better way which has a better outcome for them if they feel that we are treating them well so so that's the first thing, um, specifically responding to your question about how we want people to feel. But I think the second thing is then, you know, what are the ways that we are doing this? And we are really mindful from the 
ambitious for change work that we have already done in terms of looking at the experience of people with different protected characteristics, their experience of our process, and we know it is different for different people. And what we're doing now is doing a second stage of that research so that we can look at why is that? You know, so one of the things that we know, for example, is that there are disproportionate referrals from employers of uh, nurses and midwives into our fitness practice process if they're black. And uh, that obviously is um, a, a really big issue in terms of the impact on those individuals, the ripple effect that that has amongst those communities. So we want to understand why that is happening and what more can we do um, to stop it ha from happening. So we've been speaking to employers. We've also been speaking to registrants who have gone through the process so that we can come up with some practical solutions to respond. And we are hoping to conclude that stage of our work and to release our findings over the summer. And what I'm hoping there is that we're going to have some very practical things that we can do to make things better for people. And I was going to ask you what um, success will look like for, for the changes you've just been speaking about. I mean, you just mentioned the disproportionate um, number of uh, nurses and midwives from, from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Will success be a sort of more proportionate number of referrals from, from those areas of the population? Certainly, I think that that's something that we should be looking towards in terms of uh, there being proportionate um, referrals, those referrals being the right referrals as well, and making sure that we are getting less of the referrals from employers uh, that we close immediately at screening because there is no case to answer, it's not sufficiently serious. But you know, that referral has been made, that um, uh, uh, professional on our register uh, has had that hanging over them for however long it takes us to close that down. So, um, so I'd like us to see uh, that we do have proportionate referrals. I'd like us to see less referrals that we close quickly because we should be concentrating our resources on those issues that really need our attention. Mm, thank you. Um, and also I wanted to sort of you, you've touched on, of course, there the one of the, the sort of central tenants really of, of, of making, you know, the, the regulator um, more kind. And I wanted to ask also about how you can sort of enable, I guess, the balance between um, expediency and obviously um, safety. So um, I recently re received an email from a nurse who'd made a, an honest mistake during their, their revalidation application, um, sort of unbeknown to, to both of the parties, their, their confirmer was ineligible. And so the, the nurse in question reported this to, to the NMC and as a result, um, couldn't gain employment due to the investigation investigation um, going on and um, and that um, lasted for almost one and a half years um, and and then obviously it's found no no case to answer so obviously you know understandably this this caused you know a lot of stress for for the individual and of course loss of income so I wanted to find out really how um, these lengthy and, and stressful scenarios can be avoided. Uh 
I mean, I'm just so sorry to hear that story, Flavia. Um, that is not the way things should be happening. Um, and uh, and I apologise to um, uh, the, 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 the professional involved there. And you know, we do have complex processes and we need to be making sure that we're conducting them as swiftly as we possibly can. But it shouldn't happen in the way that it did um, for that individual. We have, I have to say, um, experienced some significant delays over the last couple of years as a consequence of the pandemic. So uh, at the early stages of the pandemic, we paused on some of our investigation work for those um, cases did, that did not pose an immediate risk um, to public protection. Uh, because as I'm sure you can imagine, people in the first wave of the pandemic, the last thing that they wanted was the Nursing and Midwifery Council coming along and saying, mm, could you provide us with all of this information about this referral that you've sent us? So we have built in, I'm, I'm afraid, a, a very significant delay as a consequence of that. And obviously that builds and builds, doesn't it, as you're trying to, trying to clear it. So we, you know, it, it, is, it is something that is our number one focus at the moment to try and tackle the fitness to practice caseload and bring that down. We want to make it a quick process anyway. It is so much better for us to make a decision early in the process, as early and as safely as we possibly can, because that saves grief for everybody involved. It starts actually with employers. It starts with supporting employers to resolve their concerns locally, um, because you know, very often things that come to us could be resolved at a local level as an employment issue with appropriate support for the individual if there are training needs or whatever it may be. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. And then, as I say, we can concentrate our resources on those people who do need um, uh, to, to be in, uh, investigated. We've also tried to do work on revising our forms and strengthening our guidance about making referrals and uh, providing information uh, uh, about that so that people can make an informed decision as to whether they should be doing that. We're also looking at and we have uh, improved the guidance that we give to uh, the people who are working in our screening teams. So that's the first place that a referral goes and we look at that. We have criteria that we assess a referral against um, to help to determine whether we should can progress in terms of a, an investigation or not. And we've clarified some of that um, uh, decision making process for us at our screening teams so that there can be much more consistency around all of that. A really important thing that we've been you know, planning on doing for quite some time, it goes all the way back to the Youth Fitness to Practice strategy in 2018, uh, but we were able to bring this in over this last year, is a better way of looking at context. And that context really taking into consideration a whole range of issues that help us to determine more swiftly whether this really is an issue uh, of an individual fitness to practice or whether it is a broader issue that is a systemic issue in the service or, um, or, or in the community that um, anybody could have um, uh, fallen foul of and it's not the individual's responsibility. So there's lots of different things that we are trying to take into account there. 
but we'd like to go further. We'd like to do more on this, but some of our legislation is a bit restrictive. Uh, it's over 20 years old. We really want to improve that. So there is a process that we are working with the government on at the moment, um, which we're calling regulatory reform, which is all about enabling us to move away from the very adversarial nature of our fitness to practice process at the moment and some of the language that goes along with that so that we can be much more collaborative based on a common understanding of what it is that we're trying to achieve so that we can actually move things through more swiftly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I think that would definitely be appreciated, won't it, by registrants who, who are involved in those for, for sure. Um, you, you also um, spoke about there about some of the um, sort of um, I guess uh, support you're, you're trying to give to to employers to see that they um, can handle cases locally where appropriate. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that sort of how the the NMC can can support employers in in doing this? You know, so so cases only come to to you when absolutely necessary. We've done that in a, in a variety of different ways. So first and foremost, there's the information that we've got on the website. So we've um, provided information, particularly for employers about what makes a good investigation and enabling them to um, do the work that they need to do in a way that is actually, it actually helps them to improve the situation, address the problem if they need to and to work and if they are going to have to make the referral to provide better information to us so that we're not constantly having to go back and forth in terms of asking for additional uh, information. And um, we've also um, uh, provided other information on the website specifically for employers about um, how they can manage those fitness to practice concerns. So, so that, that's that's the first thing, information and guidance um, for employers, which is uh, obviously freely available and accessible on the website. The second thing that we have been doing and really strengthening over the last few years is our employer link service. So this is a group of regulatory advisors who are there and available for employers to call for advice, to talk issues through, um, to get that you know, bit of common sense check sometimes that people need as to, well, I think I might need to do this or I don't think I need to do this. Is that the right thing? So it's all about giving people confidence in terms of the decision making that they're uh, uh, undertaking at a local level. And the um, regulatory advisors, I mean, they're a great team. They really, really are. And we've got a fabulous new assistant director in Sam Donoghue, who is now leading that team, who, um, you know, they, they, they're really focused on making very strong links with employers so that, um, you know, people feel that they can come to us, they can ask us those questions, uh, we are going to help them. Um, and the other thing that we've done, uh, I mentioned about improving the forms, and that might sound really boring, um, but it's actually quite important that the way that we ask questions in referral forms really guides people to give us the right information and makes them think about what it is that they are doing and how they're doing it. So again, um, that uh, they, they make the right referrals and if they are making a referral, they give us the information that they need. Yeah, thank you. Have you got any examples of how the, the forms have been improved, you know, the sort of language and... 
Is it just being made simpler or? Yes, it's a, it's about simplification of language. It's about being a little bit more directive in terms of, you know, this is the information that we need. These are the things that you need to take into consideration. And we've worked with, um, you know, employers and others to help us um, understand what actually is, is useful for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK, thank you. Um, I wanted to move on to to talk about um, language testing for, for overseas nurses. And I know that the week we're, we're speaking on this is this is very topical because the, the council has just um, approved a, a consultation into this. So, you know, of course, um, I'm sure many people will be aware of the, the background that, you know, Nurses, some nurses from overseas have been unable to meet the language proficiency standards, you know, despite having qualified under courses taught in English or, or having worked in, in UK healthcare roles, you know, such, such as the un unregulated roles. And mm. I know you've now launched this this consultation. Um, so I wanted to really find out a bit more uh, about that and also really find out when when we might start to, to see a, a difference. Um, I know for example, the, the nurses coming in from overseas are certainly um, helping the, the government work towards its, its 50,000 new nurses by, by 2024. Um, so, um, yeah, could you could you sort of tell me about how, you know, you, you're going about this and, and how you're also obviously balancing the, the safety of, of patients and, and healthcare with, with fairness to, to applicants who, who wish to join the register in the UK? Absolutely. And you are spot on that that is the balance that we have got to achieve. We, you know, Our fundamental reason for being in terms of our regulatory role is to protect the public, to ensure that the people who are on our register are safe, capable and uh, effective in terms of being able to deliver uh, uh, care. So, um, uh, but equally, we want to make sure that we are not putting unreasonable barriers in the way of people who need to be, uh, uh, who want to be on the register. English language is really important. Um, uh, one of the things that I reflect upon is that nurses and midwives are the two professional groups within the health and social care service who spend the most time with people using services and patients. So their interaction with um, people using services um, and the ability to communicate in English effectively is really important for that experience, but it's also really important for safety um, in terms of being able to communicate well with the rest of the multidisciplinary team, sometimes in very pressurised circumstances. So we've got all of these things that we're kind of sitting on both sides, both bits of my shoulders in terms of the things that we we've got to think through. So what we've been doing is looking at the criteria um, that we've already got, the, the expectations that we have. We've undertaken a bit of a, 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 a literature review to compare our approach to the approach of other regulators to other countries to see whether we're consistent or not. Pretty much we are, um, but but that was a, a useful and interesting thing to do. We've also been talking to stakeholders, as you quite rightly say, stakeholders including people who want to come onto the register, international um, uh, overseas uh, uh, nurses and midwives who are already on the register, uh, employers, members of the public to understand their perspectives on all of this, what are the options that we might have. And we've got an external advisory group which is supporting the team internally that's doing all of that work. 
So where we are now is that the council have agreed that we can go out to consultation and we are finalising those consultation documents and the survey that we will be using um, uh, to, to go out with. And we're, we're focusing on three particular areas. The first is around the potential for the use of references from employers. So as you say, some people are already in this country, they're already working in um, uh, health or in social care as uh, healthcare support workers, whatever it may be, and working in, in you know, using English while they're, while they're doing that. You know, the perspective of their employers, how could we use that? How could we use that in an objective way to ensure that um, uh, that's appropriate? So that's that's one area that we want to look at. Another area that we want to look at is uh, some people have gained postgraduate qualifications and uh, which have been taught and examined in English. And uh, currently we don't take those in, in, into consideration in, in, uh, 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 in a way that would um, mean that people wouldn't have to take the test. So we want to explore that as well. And we're also looking at some of the issues to do with how we combine test scores, the period of time that people have to be able to take um, the test. So currently people can combine test scores as long as they're within six months. And we're suggesting that maybe we should extend that to a year. So there's a there's quite a lot of different questions in that that we're asking. And we're also asking some kind of um, more catch-all questions in terms of other things that we might want to might want to explore in the future. We intend to go out for an eight-week consultation uh, from June onwards and then we are hoping that we'll be able to gather all of that back in. We've got a team um, from an organisation called Britain Thinks and they uh, they will do an analysis, an independent analysis of the consultation feedback, and we're hoping to take final proposals to the council in September, which would mean that we'd be in a position to start implementing uh, any new arrangements that the council agrees from October onwards. Oh wow! So that's pretty pretty soon then. Well, I mean. We, I'm saying October onwards so because we need to give ourselves um, the ability to, to, yeah, to, to yeah. put things in place. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, some of these things we could do quite quickly. Some might take a little bit more time, but we're absolutely committed to looking at this as thoroughly as we possibly can, but as swiftly as we can. We, one of the things that we did in the development of this work was a round table last November with um, colleagues who had gone through the, the, the process, some of whom had failed the test several times. And, and quite frankly, you know, some of their stories were absolutely heart-wrenching in terms of how it had made them feel, what that had meant for them in terms of their careers, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. And so we know that this is a really important issue for lots and lots of people, which is the reason why we want to progress it as quickly as we can. Mm, mm, definitely. I was just just reading something actually, which we're, we're publishing really on on career progression for overseas nurses. And, and there was someone from the Philippines who was just saying he'd been working there. You know, obviously he joined the register quite some time ago now, but he'd been working in the Philippines as a director of nursing. And he was working here for over six months, I think, as a healthcare assistant, which, you know, 
nothing wrong with being an HCA, but um, you know, obviously he, he it took him quite some time. And he he was just saying actually that you know he's he's glad the changes that that have happened, you know, since since he's been in in the UK and has, has seen some improvement there. So so that's that's good, yeah. And um, I wanted to sort of also um, that that kind of segues a bit into to my next question because obviously um your your latest um registration figures showed um the the huge and very significant um contribution that the nurses from the philippines and, and india make to to the uk um healthcare and um i know that that half the nurses who who joined the um register last year for, were from overseas um so i mean really the the nursing and midwifery workforce has never been so so diverse in 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 countries of origin so i wanted to ask sort of what what challenges does this present to you as a regulator and also what does this mean for for the resilience or retention of the nursing workforce it's a really really important question um flavia you're absolutely right to 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 highlight that and as you correctly say Oh, you know, we had 48,000, over 48,000 people joined the register last, last year, and more than 23,000 of those came from overseas, which is 48%. So it's really significant and also a very big leap in terms of um, uh, the previous year and before the pandemic. So in terms of the challenges that that presents to us as a regulator to start off with, First and foremost, we've got to have the capacity to respond to that. <laughs> we've got to be able to um, support uh, with appropriate capacity in the OSCE centres where people take their test of competence and also in our international registration teams um, that administer the process to ensure that we're checking all of the details that we need to check, that we've got everything in order and that we can get people onto the register as swiftly as we possibly can. So that's that's an important issue for us is making sure that we've got capacity. And this year we have opened two new OSCE centres, one in Leeds and one in um, uh, Northumbria to expand our capacity um, uh, for tests up to 35,000, at least 35,000 um, tests a year. So that that's a, that's a big issue for us in terms of that, that capacity and working with the OSCE centres, um, the new ones, uh, as I say, in Leeds and Newcastle and the existing ones at Oxford, Brooks, Northampton and, and, and Ulster. The, the the second is it's also making sure that our decisions are fair. So it goes back to I know that we started uh, the podcast talking about fair decisions in fitness to practice. We've absolutely got to make sure that we are making fair decisions in the um, the process of international registration. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at the English language uh, tests as well. So, you know, making sure that we're being responsive to all of that. Um, We've also done an awful lot over the last um, uh, few years to streamline our process to ensure that as much of it as possible can be done online. And we're told um, by employers as well as by uh, the overseas applicants themselves that actually we've made the UK an attractive place to come because so much of um, uh, what they used to have to do manually and with a paper chase, they can do online now. And that is very helpful. So those are some of the challenges for kind of keeping up with the pace of that and making sure that we've got a process that supports people. 
But I think that the issues for the nursing workforce as a whole are really quite profound. Um, we, given that nearly half of the new joiners last year came from overseas, what that demonstrates obviously is that we are very reliant upon um, an international workforce, which makes us vulnerable to um, global changes. Now, you know, let's hope that we never have a pandemic, the situation that we had at the beginning of 2020. But in that in that situation, you know, the uh, international registration plummeted to nearly zero in the first three months because people were not coming into the country. We couldn't run the OSCE um, centre tests, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, that, that meant that there was a real gap in terms of international recruitment. And as you say, the two big countries, um, two thirds of uh, the, 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 the 23,000 people that came onto the register last year came from India and the Philippines. Now, what if there are changes in either of those countries that mean that it's less attractive for them to come here, it's more attractive for them to stay where they are, their governments want that to happen. You know, that's not the case as it stands at the moment, but you, you, we, we, we can't predict the future. So you know, we would be vulnerable to those changes which would be beyond our control. Um, so I think that what that talks to is making sure that we're doing as much as we can to retain people um, uh, on the register and to attract people from within the UK to, um, uh, to train uh, as, as nurses and midwives. But I think there's also something really important for us in terms of how we treat people who come from overseas. And this is absolutely fundamental to us having a fair and a kind system um, within uh, uh, the NHS, within health and social care more broadly. So there's got to be proper welcoming and support for new colleagues that assist. I mean, they've come thousands of miles. Some of them have left their children behind. You know, they come to this country, they will, you know, um, yes, as you say, kind of folk may well have had really important jobs elsewhere, but this is a different, it's a different climate. It's a different um, context. We need to make sure that we're supporting people. We also know that people from black and other minority ethnic backgrounds do face discrimination in our health and social care services, sometimes from colleagues, sometimes from members of the public. Um, and we absolutely need to be tackling that. We need to be tackling that for people from different ethnic backgrounds um, uh, from the UK. But we absolutely, if we have been bringing people um, from overseas to here, we have got to make sure that they are being treated fairly. And um, we also need to support their careers. You know, I just hear too many stories of people coming across and going into uh, NHS roles at band five and then staying there for years um, because bizarrely people think oh well I'm not going to um, promote that person because they're going to go back home at some stage but actually the length of time that people from overseas stay on our register is considerable so um, you know we we need to be making sure that we're supporting people um, to ensure that their careers flourish and thrive in in in, in the UK and um, we don't take them for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. The 
the piece I was just referring to actually is, is um, some of the work the, the Florence Nightingale Foundation are doing with their, their Windrush program, which is is very impressive. And um, also we have had podcasts before actually in the kind of pastoral support that, that trusts are giving. And I'm sure like anything, it's, it's it varies from location to location. But yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's um, very positive, I think, too. So, yeah. Well, and we think that's really important too. I mean, for example, mm -hmm. on the um, Windrush um, uh, programme uh, that um, the FNF are, are, are um, running, we that that has been supported by Health Education England, but we have now um, joined up with the Florence Nightingale Foundation to sponsor places for people from the devolved administrations, so from Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, so that we can broaden that out um, into making that opportunity available to people there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. It's great to hear. Um, I wanted to to close by asking um an interesting question. I always think to ask of people in your position. Um, how how do you um uh, stay resilient yourself, particularly with with what you've just been through, as we all have with the pandemic. But I know the the NMC has been very busy. It it has indeed. Um. I it, it, it's interesting, this this whole kind of question of self-care. So one of the things that um, I have started to do, because my wonderful, lovely husband got me um, an e-bike for my birthday this year. Oh. <laughs> and it's, it is beautiful. It is red and it's got yellow panniers now. And, um, and I am as, as visible as you can possibly be on it. Um, but uh, I'm, I've, I've started commuting into work on it. Um, so... And that's really interesting because it gives me 40 minutes in and 40 minutes home where I'm concentrating on not getting killed, I have to say, because, you know, it is London Road. Um, but there's a bit of physical exercise there and I am not thinking about work because when I was commuting, I was doing emails on my phone and, you know, I, I, there was no switching off time. So... Actually, I'm beginning to think that um, this is a brilliant idea to really help me, A, to get fit, lose some of those pounds that I put on during the pandemic when not all I did was sit in um, uh, my little uh, spare bedroom, in, uh, uh, which I've turned into an office, and um, and give me a bit of a bit of breathing space. Mm, definitely. And I like how you're also combining your uh, safety aspect with your, your red bike and your, your yellow panniers. Oh, and I've got the best helmet. It's got little flashing lights on it and everything. Um, <laughs> one of my colleagues said, you're only doing this for the gadgets, aren't you, Andrea? But um, but it, it's, it's not true. I'm, do, I'm doing gadgets for a purpose. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, I'm sure people can can look out for you. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for taking part in the Nursing Standard podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation, Flavia, and I hope that your listeners enjoy it too. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that all the resources connected with this episode of the show can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up on any episodes you may have missed or simply want to play back. And we greatly appreciate any feedback, so please do rate or review us on Apple or Spotify podcasts, which will also help other people to find us. I hope you enjoyed the show.